You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello and welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 483 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, October 15th, 2022, and the sun is shining on the Mullet household, and it's official now. I have four monitors on my PC for the first time ever. This feels like a level up. I'm not going to lie to you. It feels like going from a V6 to a V8. And Lauren asked me this morning if I'm perhaps compensating for something, which uh, might sting a little bit, except the answer is yes. This is compensating for there being only so many hours in the day, but a lot of information, relative comprehension, plus so many unscrupulous and uncurious people in the world. So to the end of getting knowledge and understanding for myself and sharing the same with others, this is a happy day for me and uh, I hope for all of you as well. I think that you're going to get a better podcast experience from me, for instance, and I'm going to have an easier time podcasting for you, for instance, and ultimately to God be the glory. But in other news, and speaking of to God be the glory, our biblical training group met again last night for the second time and went through naturally lecture two of A Guide to Christian Theology with Gary Brashears, the topic being general revelation. Of special interest to me was something Brashears pointed out about Psalm 19 and the transition in it from the generic name for God used at the beginning, Elohim, to the specific name of God, Yahweh, beginning in verse 7. As the subject shifts from general revelation to special revelation and from what creation tells us about our creator God, in the abstract, to what Scripture tells us about God in the specifics. And I'd like to read for you Psalm 19, and you'll get a better idea of what Gary Brashears is talking about, starting from the top. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy." 
Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. And notice this, right? Notice this beginning first six verses talking about general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then as you go into verse seven through the end of the psalm, the law of Yahweh is perfect. The testimony of Yahweh is sure. The precepts of Yahweh are right. The commandment of Yahweh is pure. The fear of Yahweh is clean. The rules of Yahweh are true. All of these testifying to who God is, giving glory to God. Sola Deo Gloria, glory to God. But I think in a practical sense, this is a helpful way for us to think about the way we relate to God and also the way we should go about talking of God with one another. This is the way. Yes, wicked men have suppressed the truth. They do suppress the truth. They will suppress the truth because their deeds are dark, but they can't suppress all of the truth or else they would die and they can't suppress the truth if you know the truth. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, let your eyes see, let your ears hear. Don't cast your pearls before swine or give to dogs what is holy. Do draw on connection points and correct error in yourself and others with gentleness and respect. Yes, by all means, look at general revelation and then proceed from general revelation to what God has said of himself, his promises, his character, his enduring faithfulness, his love, his compassion, his great loving kindness. Do correct error in yourself and others with gentleness and respect accordingly. But I'm going to play a clip for you moving into this reaction video material that was sent to me yesterday, which I just instinctively clicked on. It was sent me by my cousin Micah and it's from an online personality, and he's also a personality in the real world, but where do you draw the line between the real world and the virtual world? Where does one end and the other begin? A guy by the name of Andrew Tate tells a story in this YouTube short about his grandmother, and I want you to go ahead and listen to it, and then I'll react to it. It's not a reaction video, but this is my podcast, and uh, I'll do what I want to. 
<laughs> so we're going to react in audio, I guess. It's a reaction audio, so to speak. But take a listen, Andrew Tate talking about his grandmother. And when you're 52 and you're past it with no grandchildren in a house by yourself and all your friends have grandchildren in this beautiful life and you're sitting there by yourself, do you think the fact that you could afford a few extra Gucci bags is going to genuinely make you feel happy? I was at my grandmother's 93rd birthday. I looked there. My grandmother had nine children because there was my father and, and eight more. They all had a bunch of kids. I stood there and I looked at my 93-year-old grandmother and there was a room, a whole room full with maybe 70 people that came from that one woman. Isn't that remarkable? Nobody cared about her career. Nobody asked what job she did. Nobody asked how many times she went to the club. Nobody asked if she had time to go to festivals. No, you had 70 sentient beings, including myself, full of life from one woman who dedicated herself to being a mother and a good wife. That is beautiful. Yes, yes, yes. That is beautiful. And I love the setup here, which you can't see because it's audio, but that's all right. What you can't see here are the cutaways in this video. And it's Andrew Tate and a bunch of people who are friends of his, I'm sure, uh, sitting around a table doing some kind of a podcast discussion, conversation, what have you. And they're young people, relatively young people and beautiful people and well-dressed and it's a nice place it looks like with uh, probably some expensive things lots of money has gone into their appearance their aesthetic and uh, their lifestyle but what you can't see here are the cutaways to a beautiful woman in a red dress sitting right next to Andrew Tate and the look on her face I mean she's got this big beautiful hair and a beautiful face and a lovely figure, and a red dress, and here's Andrew Tate sitting to her, I suppose it would be left, sitting to her left, she's sitting to his right, I don't know what she is to him, whether she's a love interest, girlfriend, uh, wife, whatever, I don't know, but he's, you know, waxing eloquent and talking about his grandmother, and you can see it on her face that she's thinking deeply about what he's saying. Like she's reevaluating her priorities and wondering whether maybe she has put too much stock in uh, the wrong things compared with Andrew Tate's grandmother, for instance. She's going to the club. She's looking beautiful. She's getting out to festivals. She's doing, you know, the, the high life thing as it's been told to her. Life is about these events, these parties, these you know, get togethers. And now she's thinking to herself, am I going to have something like what he's describing when I'm 93? And it's like something that Carl Truman points out in Strange New World, a book that I read this week. Young women who dress in a way that is, let's say, rebellious towards previous generations or contrary to what their parents or grandparents would approve of, they are seeking acceptance in a group or a family, if you will, even if it's not the previous generation or the one before that, even if it's not their parents' generation or their parents specifically or their grandparents specifically, they are seeking acceptance and they are abiding by a kind of dress code. And what group are they wanting acceptance into? 
or affirmation from not their family as it used to be, it's their peers and whatever is considered fashionable in their generation, particularly their clique. But let me ask you this, how should what Andrew Tate is describing here, talking about, relate to what God's word tells us about the role of our church and our family, as well as our responsibilities to our church and family. What's the vision of the good life being portrayed here in actuality and also in contrast, right? So you you get a bunch of young people who are beautiful people who do live that party life, who do, do live that lavish lifestyle and they're single and they don't have any kids you know they're not going to have grandkids because they don't have any kids and they shouldn't have kids because they're not married but what's their vision of the good life they're living it and what was the vision of the good life which Andrew Tate's grandmother had which is the reason why he's here to even be given the opportunity to be a prodigal son or whatever right if he's not wasting his life great i don't know i don't know him not real 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 familiar with him although i know generally he's kind of a controversial figure for some uh because he's pushing back on this idea that men should um step aside women rule the world now we don't need you men you know making decisions and leading and being strong providers and things like that but what is the vision of the good life that Andrew Tate has uh, embraced so far and communicated so far? And what was the vision of the good life that his grandmother had that led to her making the decisions that she did and being in a place where on her 93rd birthday, she's got 70 sentient beings, including himself, as he says, gathered there together to celebrate and to thank her. What's the good life vision that we're pursuing? And Lord willing, what does that vision hold for the short, medium, and long-term goals that we have? Not that we should boast in them, but whatever we're going to be found doing when we pass from this life, whether we die or Christ calls us home, what are we pursuing in that moment? And is it actually what God says is good? Is our vision of the good life the same? Or are we trying to make it as close as possible to the vision of the good life that God has given us or would give us if we were listening. Some things to think about, some things to ponder. Uh, I do appreciate Andrew Tate telling this story. I don't mean to criticize him, uh, but I do appreciate rather that he is giving honor to his grandmother in the way that he is. And it makes me think of my grandmothers. Not that either of them were perfect uh, any more than my grandfathers were perfect, but My grandmother, when she passed from this life, my grandmother Mullet, had nine children who loved her, who cared about her, who still love her, who still remember her very fondly. She had dozens and dozens of grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and her grandchildren very much were loved and are loved by their husbands and wives and their own children. And I think it's worth remarking on that we owe something to previous generations in the way of consideration, respect, honor for what they have done to get us to where we're at right now. We owe something to them 
a debt of gratitude and respect. If they made some good decisions, if they made some bad decisions, we can honor them while being honest about that and evaluating it carefully and trying to learn from both alike. But we shouldn't be throwing out everything just because somebody has told us that it's all up from here, no matter what we do, because we are just innately superior to all who went before. We should throw out everything they knew, everything that they had acquired. It's all garbage now. Not so fast. Hold on. And what's your angle here? What's your motive for wanting us to think that? I don't trust you personally. Speaking for myself, my vision of the good life is in large part what I'm living out. My wife and I got married young. We started having kids. I've been trying to work as hard as I possibly can and as smart as I possibly can, not one or the other, but both and ever since to provide for my wife, to provide for our children. And by God's grace, we have eight and we've had some miscarriages to be sure. And that's been heartbreaking, but we are so thankful to the good Lord Almighty for the heritage from him, which our children represent and are. And I very much look forward, my wife and I very much look forward and talk often about it to the day when our children grow up and go out and they get married as well and they have children of their own. And those children who are born to our children will come and see us on the holidays and we'll have a place for them to come and see us. And that's a very exciting vision. That's a very good vision. And that gives me a sense of optimism about the future, which I don't find in the broader world. I don't see it. I see conformity to the vision of the good life in the broader world as being bankrupt and to no good end. But I see that vision, which I read about in the scriptures, which I saw patterned uh, and modeled for me by previous generations in my own family and in others and in the church. I see that as having a future and that it will go well with the righteous, as God's word says. But in current events, just briefly, I want to talk a little bit about what the world is up to with Elon Musk and the ongoing war in Ukraine. The Ukrainian ambassador recently took to Twitter to, uh, how do I paraphrase this to make it PG or G rated? Uh, He basically told Elon Musk to um, mind his own business, I guess you could say. But he he used a very crass phrase uh, to say it. He he told him to F off uh, over Twitter, by the way. So publicly, as public as it gets for the world to see. And I'm wondering if the gentleman from Ukraine, uh, I say that gentleman bit, uh, trying to be gracious. I, I wonder if the Ukrainian ambassador is unfamiliar with the saying, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Uh, Maybe he is. Maybe he is actually saying what he's saying to Elon Musk because he thinks thereby he will get more favor for himself and Ukraine. Maybe somebody paid him to say it. Uh, Certainly the the Democrats are not happy with Elon Musk for trying to buy Twitter. FBI agents are reportedly, according to filings by Twitter, investigating Elon Musk for his attempted purchase of Twitter, which I think is highly sus. I don't think his trying to buy Twitter is highly sus. I think they're investigating him is highly sus. But maybe, just maybe, 
the hand that feeds this Ukrainian ambassador uh, is exactly what he has in mind. And it's not Elon Musk as he sees it. But do note that Elon Musk donated a great deal of hardware and time and attention to Ukraine at the outset as Russia was invading and trying to cut Ukraine off from the broader world and make it impossible for Ukrainians to report on uh, atrocities and war crimes by Russia in this, uh, I won't say unprovoked act of aggression, but insufficiently warranted, to put it mildly, incursion into another nation's borders and territory. Yeah, Elon Musk sent a whole bunch of hardware for Starlink internet to Ukraine to make it possible for them to stay online, to stay in communication, to continue communicating within the country and also to communicate outside the country and to coordinate relief efforts and uh, defense of the country, basically. But here lately, Musk has been talking more about what does it look like to get to an off-ramp? How do we get out of World War III? Some people very much are okay with having World War III right now, right here. I think we're in a very bad place for it. I don't like at all who is at the helm uh, of such an effort on our side, so to speak, so-called. I think this is being leveraged for all that it's worth to try and accomplish uh, the Great Reset. This idea that you will own nothing and be happy Uh, We are seeing smuggled in to the terms of service agreement by the powers that be globally. And it's not to say that Putin is a victim or that Russia is, uh, you know, the good guy's power here and we're the we're all the bad guys. But it is to say you can have bad guys on all sides very easily. And you can also have unscrupulous pretenders who say they are for certain things, but really what they're about is profiting, period. And it's not to say that making a profit is a bad thing. I am a uh, big time proponent of people enjoying the fruits of their labors, but God says that he hates unequal weights and measures. He detests them. He hates lying lips and those who sow discord uh, between brothers. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates those who are uh, unscrupulous. He hates them and he hates their deeds. And God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So we should have no part in that. If there are uh, corrupt forces at work here, we shouldn't go in with them in their wicked deeds. They're going to fall into their own pit were promised, and God will see that justice is done. But for someone to try and say, okay, hey, let's think out loud here. What does peace look like? How do we bring a peaceful resolution to what's going on in the Ukraine with Russia and Ukraine fighting and the risk of the entire world having World War III and potentially a nuclear war between Russia and the United States The Ukrainian ambassador's response uh, sets a new low, really, compared with a recent podcast episode I did where I was talking about U.S. senator from 
South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, and his trying to bully Elon Musk into shutting up already. Uh, the Ukrainian ambassador seems as though he said, hold my beer, and did one better. But then President Zelensky as well recently conducted a poll on Twitter asking users which Elon Musk they liked better, the one who supported Ukraine or the one who supports Russia. And I think that's in very bad taste. I don't know that I'm on board with Tucker Carlson's uh, commentary regarding Ukraine and Russia, but I will say this, independently, my own mind made up, Zelensky has no right to our money. He has no right to demand it. He has no right to mock us or insult us. We've given a lot. We've invested a great deal. And we have exposed ourselves to a great deal of risk here in the U.S. and in the West to support Ukraine's efforts at national defense. And if he wants to get all squirrely about us not potentially sending any more, uh, you know what? I think he can just be on his own. And I think the Ukrainian people as well if that's going to be their mindset. But the Lord loves a, a, a cheerful giver. And quite frankly, we are not Ukraine. You can say, I stand with Ukraine. Fine, stand with Ukraine. We are not Ukraine. We are not Ukraine. First and foremost, our responsibility is to our own household. It is to our own country. Unless we have made promises to just hand over uh, everything that we've got, empty our pockets, you know, and, and even then, there's there is such a thing as a hasty vow and a hasty oath. I certainly didn't promise that. I didn't promise to give everything that I've got. How would it be if I personally, individually, Garrett Mullet, went to my bank account right now and withdrew every last cent that I have in the checking account and sent it off to Ukraine? How would that be? Would you think that that was very noble, that was very good, that was very appropriate, very right? How about if I said, that is going to mean for the next two weeks until I get paid, because I got paid yesterday, I don't have anything to buy groceries for my family with, I don't have any way to pay bills, I have no way to pay utilities, I have no way to put fuel in our vehicles for my wife to be able to take our kids across town to help the uh, older couple who need some furniture put back in place after they just recently got their carpet redone. You know, how would it be if I said, okay, we're going to help Ukraine, but I'm doing so for one in a kind of denial of my own finitude and I'm doing so at the expense of my own wife and children. Would you say that was good and honorable and noble? Now just scale that up, right? And the answer is you shouldn't. If you did think that that was really good and godly and honorable, you shouldn't. And you need to do some soul searching as to why why that would be your answer. But God's word really does cast a vision, again, going back to the Andrew Tate grandmother story, cast a vision of the good life, which requires that we are supposed to do good to all, but first the household of faith. Also, too, that he who does not provide for the needs of his own is worse than an infidel, especially those of his immediate family. So that is to say, I don't have infinite resources, but what resources I do have go first and foremost to my wife and my children. Thereafter, 
my extended family, thereafter, my church family, thereafter, if there is some remainder, if there's something left, I give that to others besides. But consider, if you will, 1 Timothy 5. And this might seem like an odd place to go for guidance and wisdom concerning the situation with Ukraine. But what we have in 1 Timothy 5 is general instructions for the church. And they're of two kinds, and they're kind of two sides of the same coin, because the church needs to take care about what sort of men the church empowers, and also what kind of women the church empowers. And there are two different ways to empower. One is to empower men by giving them authority. Put them in a position of power and authority very, very carefully after you have tested their character first and foremost. Look at the qualifications. They are not first and foremost a list of talents, abilities in a material sense. But where the material comes into play is how do they use what they have? How do they consume or else invest or else take care of what they have to the end of loving God faithfully and honoring him and to the end of providing for their wife and their children, keeping their household in order, managing their household well. And this is an all-inclusive, all-encompassing, comprehensive portrait of their character. But it's not just a question of, hey, how much money do they have in their bank account? How big is their house? How clean and tidy is it? How nice is their stuff? How well do they dress? What kind of a car do they show up in? No, no. This is first and foremost a question of, are they being faithful to God with the totality of their responsibilities? And this has to do with maintaining discipline. This has to do with loving and nurturing and guiding. This has to do with discipleship. This has to do with Bible training. This has to do with theology and philosophy and education and food and housing and shelter and clothing. With what has been entrusted to them, are they doing what God has assigned for them to do in the spheres where they already have authority? But then things switch gears. And it's interesting that we have this talk of the qualifications of elders or how we should relate to them, giving them honor, or how we should be careful about charges or accusations being brought against an elder that might impugn their character unfairly out of malice or out of bitterness, out of someone trying to blackmail or extort those elders to do or support or not do something, you know, contrary to what their convictions are. But in the midst of all of it, there's these two paragraphs in the ESV saying, honor widows who are truly widows. So we see in verse 17 that the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. But that word honor is used here with regards to widows. Verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. Verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn 
to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But now here's the rest of the story, which if we take things out of context and we don't read the whole counsel of God, we will miss. But, verse 6, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So first and foremost, godliness in this context has to do with providing for the needs of your own household, especially then from there, your relatives in a broader sense. So you don't go doing penance or giving to charity for people far, far away when your own family needs that and they're right here. You don't do it to be seen by men like the Pharisees did and to be praised and to be spoken well of. Beware when men speak well of you, we're told in God's word. But then Paul continues in verse 9. He says, let a widow be enrolled, let her be enrolled, if she is not less than 60 years of age. So she has to be older than 60. Also, if she's been the wife of one husband. In other words, the inverse must be true as well. She cannot be enrolled. Don't let her be enrolled if she is younger than 60 or if she was married multiple times. Also, he continues, verse 10, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, which is to say, if she hasn't, then don't. If she hasn't been this kind of character, then don't enroll her. But he says it more emphatically, more explicitly, to where we don't have to solve for X only. We should, but not only. Verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows. Younger than what? 60. Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry their children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And how this relates to the Ukraine business is quite simple. For one, just because someone is in dire straits, that does not mean we necessarily have an obligation to drop everything, to stop helping anybody else that we were helping and help this other person. There's lots of people who are in trouble and you can't help them all. And if you try, you will soon be spent. But did you invest yourself wisely and in the order that God tells us to in his word. That's the big question. So if we're going to send billions and trillions of dollars to the Ukraine, where's that money going? And opportunity cost, where's it not going? That's an important question. That's a critically important question. So this is not to say that I disagree with helping Ukraine in some form or fashion. It's not to say that we have no stake in it. It's not to say 
that I think Ukraine just being taken by Russia without a peep from us is no big deal. I think sanctions are a great idea. I think cutting off business ties with Russia, if they're going to act this way, is a great idea. I think refusing to sit on a security council or a human rights council at the UN with them is a great idea. But should we take out a second mortgage on the United States of America and send all of our resources, all of our wealth, all of our political capital, all of our actual capital that is just money being printed further driving up inflation? Should we be sending all of that over to the Ukraine given the circumstances? Absolutely not. It is irresponsible and it will not lead to a freer Ukraine in the end or a freer world. It will lead to a lot of pain and destruction, not only of wealth, but also of character and of lives, more to the point. Elon Musk is now asking the Pentagon to pay for the donated Starlink service, which he was providing free of charge up until this point. SpaceX cannot continue providing it for free, he says, and also he is taking Ukraine's advice. You tell me you want me to F off? All right, then. I will. Can I have my Starlink back now, please? Whew. Heavy stuff. But personally, I don't blame him. I do not blame him. But moving on, and this will be our final topic for this episode. I am reading, none dare call it Conspiracy, a book that was recommended to me by a guy that I work with and then actually was recommended by another guy that I work with. And he was very tickled to find out that I already had it in my queue and was planning on getting to it very soon. So two guys that I work with said, yeah, you should definitely check out this book. None Dare Call It Conspiracy by Gary Allen with Larry Abraham, originally published in 1971. So it's been around for a minute. I started it yesterday and uh, I am now to chapter six. Audible tells me I have an hour and two minutes left. And so therefore, I hope to finish it today, probably not long after I finish recording this podcast episode. But for now, I'll say this is the comprehensive conspiracy theory of the modern age. This is the conspiracy theory to end all conspiracy theories. And the premise, I think, is compelling. I've talked about conspiracy theories on this podcast before in a general sense, not necessarily that I agree with the particulars of this or that conspiracy theory, but just generally speaking, dismissing an explanation for why certain things happen in the way that they do, when they do, and then what the response is. I think questioning the dismissal of some explanations because, oh, and I quote, that's just a conspiracy theory, is intellectually lazy and naive and irresponsible and foolish, uh, more to the point. So the authors in this work, they set up some things that I very much agree with on a fundamental foundational basis. Some other things that I have uh, some reserve about and I'd like to give more thought to before I know quite what to make of. But they basically set up two ways to survey history. And for our purposes, modern history is what we're interested in. The first is an accidental view. That is, 
things just happen and we all react and they're way bigger than what we can control or manage or anybody can. And it's all just random chance. And I think this way of looking at history and current events has way, way too much in common with an evolutionary set of presuppositions. That is, we are millions and billions of years old, random mutations eventually went out in breeding, in the selection of mates based on who survives and, more to the point, who thrives based on current conditions. We think along those lines about our origins, and it gets really easy to think along those lines with regards to current events, and it's a mistake. It's a grave error that sets us up for all kinds of vulnerabilities, and it makes us very foolish. It's the opposite of being wise as serpents and harmless as doves to approach life this way. But the second, as they explain, the second way to survey history and current events is admittedly conspiratorial, wherein someone or something is making strategic decisions behind the scenes to set in motion what the majority of us are then reacting to, even as those setting these things in motion are the principal actors. So we, in this way of looking at it, are reactors, but there are smart, wealthy, well-connected, capable, and yes, unscrupulous men who are the primary actors, humanly speaking, on the global stage. That, so far as it goes, I agree with. So far as it goes, generally speaking, there is no getting, there's no getting around it. To deny that way of framing the options is wishful thinking. I mean, it, that's where you say denial is not just a river in Egypt. Uh, it's also a state of mind for some people where the truth is troubling and it's upsetting and they mistake and misinterpret in Philippians where it says to think on these things, whatever is good, true, praiseworthy, honorable, commendable, excellent. They mistake that for meaning that you should put the blinders on with regards to bad things that are happening or evil things that are being done or wicked men and what they're up to. But getting from the general, you know, like we were talking earlier about general revelation and special revelation, the devil really is in the details. And just because we might agree with a general premise like that, and I do, I agree with that second way of surveying history and current events that you are looking for, you are expecting to find men conspiring to benefit, to gain, to turn a profit, to get power for themselves, to increase their power, expecting to find it, believing that that's how the world works, that people are not inherently good. That does not necessarily mean that I agree with all the specifics that someone might lay out in terms of how things connect to each other and what conclusions we should draw about the particular conspiracy involving these or those men, institutions, organizations, why exactly they're doing what they're doing all the time. But I'll just, I'll give you a spoiler here. One of the major hinge points for this work in particular is the conclusion that if international banking interests have 
consistently funded global communism. So check that out, right? They, they give a compelling uh, history and it's worth double checking, verifying, validating. Is that true? Is the history that they're telling true with regards to that premise? Uh, if international banking interests have consistently funded global communism, sponsored it, run interference for it, encouraged it, facilitated it, <clears throat> and if, second premise, they don't fear the spread of communism, which is reasonable to infer from the claim that they're funding it or they're facilitating it, then, conclusion, that's because they control communism like a piece on a chessboard. So communism is just a red jersey and capitalism is a blue jersey, but they own both teams. They own both teams and whoever wins the football match, they're going to just keep having them play again and again and again. And meanwhile, when you buy the ticket to watch, when you pay for a beer and a hot dog, when you go and, and buy a jersey and get it signed by your favorite player on whichever team you root for, the guys who own the stadium and who own the teams and who own the league, they're the ones who get the money any, any way you slice it. Either way, they're raking it in. So that's that's really like the major hinge point is that those two premises mean the conclusion is inescapable. I would say there's another possibility. There's another possibility that they don't fear communism because they are amoral and they only love money. They're, it's not that they wouldn't fear communism if they uh, <laughs> were paying attention, but amorality and the love of money could also be a factor in giving rise to communism in the first place. It's it's up in the air, in other words, as I see it. It could be one, it could be the other. And it could be, and I'm actually I'm fairly convinced, it's some combination of the two, because there definitely are very wealthy men, like George Soros, for instance, billionaires, who are promoting global communism, plain and simple. They are promoting global communism. Call it progressive, call it socialist, it's half a dozen of one and six of the other. It's a word game. It's playing games with language. They are promoting it. And you would say, well, that doesn't make sense because they're rich. Don't they stand to lose a lot? Not if they're the ones who actually control the opposition. So it's something to look at. It definitely is, especially with the whole business about the Great Reset, especially when you look at who always taking what positions through COVID, with the lockdowns, who all is taking what positions with regards to climate change. It's definitely worth taking a look at with regards to the handling of the Jeffrey Epstein uh, business. Why, for instance, have the very wealthy men, and I think some women, who were flying back and forth to his private islands, uh, why were none of them arrested? Why are seemingly none of them being investigated. And yet the FBI is up to its eyeballs in parents who show up angry at uh, school board meetings and PTA meetings. Now, why is it that the FBI is so busy trying to go after parents who are against their children being groomed by pedophiles 
and sexual deviance, why is the FBI so busy doing dawn uh, raids, early morning sunrise raids on pro-life activists, grandparents, but they're not arresting super wealthy, powerful uh, men and women who may have been in, in, involved in, uh, in pedophilia with Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell being the pimps. And these are important questions that, quite frankly, you cannot answer satisfactorily without a nod to there being conspiracies in the world. For that matter, look at the 2020 election. There are too many irregularities to explain by just saying, ah, well, I think it was a mistake, or I think your eyes are playing tricks on you. No, no, no. The reason why you want to believe that is because the conclusion that there was massive fraud, that the election was stolen, is upsetting and potentially dangerous to your interests. You care more about your relationship with people who don't want to believe that, who don't want to hear that, or maybe were even involved in it and benefited from it. You're more afraid of that than you are a lover of the truth. That's really what it comes down to. I'm convinced with regards to the 2020 election, with regards to the COVID lockdowns, with regards to the sexualization of children, with regards to this push for climate change uh, measures that will, not may, will destroy the home economies of middle and low income families across the Western world and across the developing world and across the third world. But here's a question, right? Here's a, here is a question for the Christian to ponder with regards to all of this. Because you might say, oh, well, Garrett, you know, like again, the Philippians business, you're, you're supposed to be thinking on good things, praiseworthy things, commendable things. None of this applies as a, an obedience to that command. And we're also told not to be anxious for anything. And you're being anxious or you're making me feel anxious. And I don't like it. I don't like the way I feel when you're talking about all these things and it's just very upsetting. We should just be focused on the gospel. And I say, okay, hold on. Just hold your horses for a second. How does Ephesians 6.12 relate? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Without fail, let me just be very, very clear and candid. Without fail, I think every time I have heard this passage quoted to me, it's always been understood by me to mean the person telling me thinks I am being too aggressive with an individual or somebody else is being too aggressive with an individual person and they need to be reminded we don't we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Kind of a hate the sin, but don't hate the sinner sort of a prompt. And yet, that's not all Ephesians 6.12 says. That's only the first part of it and maybe the first quarter by weight. What about the other three quarters of that verse that tell us what we do struggle against, what we do wrestle against? What our fight is against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Hmm. Oofta. Yeah. How about that? 
And are we fighting? Are we wrestling? Are we struggling? Are we contending? If we don't want to admit, and I'll leave you with this in short order, if we don't want to admit that there are rulers, there are authorities, there are cosmic powers over this present darkness, there are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, how in the world are we going to wrestle against them? Answer me that. As for me, I do admit that they exist, and it does not terrify me, because my God is greater, infinitely greater, and I've read the end of the story, and he wins, and those who are in him win. Everlasting victory. But next up, after I finish, none dare call it conspiracy, which I will tell you more about once I get to the conclusion of the matter and have some more time to think about it, and it'll probably connect well with these next two books. Next up, The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin, as I understand it, outlines the creation of the Federal Reserve as a banking cartel in the U.S., which is the cause of so many of our troubles since its inception, I am told, on good authority from many people, I think, are being genuine and know what they're talking about more than I do. I certainly can't contradict them with any weight. Also to The Great Reset, Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown by Mark Morano deals with all these considerations and tells a history of what the global elites and the ruling class have in mind for us by the year 2030. In their own words, in their own words, spoiler alert, you will own nothing and be happy. You will, now hear me, you will own nothing and be happy. The fine print obviously being, uh, or what? (laughs) Or else what? What if I don't want to own nothing? What if I do want to own some things? What if I'm not sold on your brave new world? What if I'm not happy? to own nothing and for you to own everything. Who will own anything? Well, naturally, of course, those who confiscate everything and redistribute based on their will and whim. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. It's no new thing under the sun, generally. In the specifics, though, we should absolutely expect that if these things have happened before, they will happen again. And if you don't see them in our day, it might be because the folks who would tell you about it are in some measure deceived as well or else on the take after a fashion. Lots of different kinds of currency, not just money, not just fiat. There's also social currency. There's also respectability after a fashion. There's also credibility. The real scandal of the evangelical mind. You can go back one episode, check out my review of that work by Carl Truman and also Strange New World. For more info, you could read the book and I would recommend you do. It's not very long. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. Speaking of reading books, I'm going to get back to reading books myself. I've got missing data reports to go over and to run. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.